All right, well, welcome to, uh, to Grafted. We are the College Ministry of Faith Bible Church, and we are really glad that you, uh, you joined us this evening. If you're new with us, welcome. It's great to have you. My name is Sean, and with the rest of our staff, our goal every week is to help college students to know Jesus Christ. And we do this, uh, if you are new, just so you know a little bit about us, we do it a variety of ways. We meet every Friday here. We open the Word of God, we sing, we fellowship together. We have midweek meetings we call Radix um, that meet in different parts of town. We go to camps like the one that's coming up soon. We've got other events scattered all over our calendar. We can't wait to tell you more about it at the end of tonight because there's a lot of details coming and some excited stuff in store. But in short, we are a community of imperfect and broken people seeking to grow together to become more like Christ and, and to work on our relationship with the Lord. And so... This is a pretty unique and vibrant community of people. Uh, it's my prayer that you would take some time to get to know us, get out of your comfort zone, uh, maybe become part of our group over time. That would be awesome. We are a little bit small tonight, and I'm so glad that all of you are here. This is great because we kind of have a little bit of family time going on tonight. But uh, I did want to say thank you to Nigel, who's not here, who stepped in and preached last week. I'm hopeful. I'm I'm, I'm hoping that it was helpful for you as he looked at what healthy relationships look like. And if you missed it, I would encourage you to go online. The audio's up at fbccollegeministry.com. Lots of information there. You can find out about what we're doing and what's going on. Ton of stuff. So go there. And for, my, for me, it's good to be back with you. I've been all over the place this semester. And I wanted to just start by saying I'm thankful for your patience with me personally this semester because it's been... Uh, it's been pretty crazy. There's been a lot going on, and I know I haven't been here a ton. Um, but this semester, I preached at two camps. I've been in the FBC pulpit four times, one more coming. I've traveled a bunch, Las Vegas, a couple times to Hawaii, New Zealand, Utah. I just returned this afternoon from a business trip to Florida. I'm leaving again for a trip on Monday to Denver. Uh, I just finished an Old Testament survey class in seminary. I'm in one on New Testament theology. Uh, there are some super heavy counseling things going on for us as elders at the church that we've been working through. And then personally, in the meantime, we're chasing our girls around as they're playing basketball and volleyball all over this town. Middle school is crazy. What a joy um, to be in their lives and to have time with them. And so I'm trying to gobble up every spare minute I can to be with my wife and with the girls. And in fact, Tracy and I are headed to Nashville on Sunday uh, to get some time away. Uh, also to go to a seminary class. So for me, uh, these, are, these are busy, busy times. And there's a lot going on. And uh, you've been really patient, and I'm grateful. I know it's not convenient, and it's not easy. Uh, and that's kind of what it looks like to live between two worlds as somebody that has a full-time job, has a career, and that is also serving in the church as a pastor. And, and many of you are doing similar things. And so sometimes those worlds collide. And it's not been, I have not been super accessible and there's been some needed conversations that with some of you that have gotten pushed off or even that just haven't happened. Uh, and so I, I, again, I'm sorry for those things. Uh, it's not out of a lack of desire to care for you in any way. It's more out of just the fact that I have a limited bandwidth and uh, it's difficult. So again, um, thank you for your patience. It's encouraging in my absence to come in and see this place thriving. Now, the numbers are down, but the heart of what's here is amazing. And I'm not worried about the fact that, that we've got people with graduations and parties and other things happening. It's not a big deal. I'm excited that you're here. And I look around, I see our senior staff discipling and pouring out into people's lives. 
I see our serving staff growing and many others part of this ministry serving and making this thing happen as we try to grow together to become more like Christ. And so there's life here and it's great. And I'm really hopeful that some of you who are just on the fringe or here for the first time are thinking, you know what, I I do want to become part of something that's bigger than myself where I can be in a community of people where I can grow to become more like Christ to deepen my walk with the Lord, etc. So that's our goal. And uh, we hope to see you connect more Uh, deeper and meaningful ways. That being said, as I've reflected on the semester, we're kind of in between series right now. We did something on John. We've kind of been all over the place this spring. I think in the fall, we're going to be walking into Ecclesiastes or something else from Solomon, something in the wisdom category. Looking forward to that. But tonight, I want to take a different direction. Uh, And I am kind of glad that we're on a smaller side because this is a little bit of a family night in terms of the the topic of discussion um, as we do personal inventory of our own spiritual walks. And I want to encourage you and myself in that matter to evaluate the vitality of your walk with Christ and to see how you are doing in your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ even tonight. If we ask the question, what is the central piece the central tenet, the main core of the Christian life. It really distills down and comes down to one singular thing. There's a lot of things when I say what's important in the Christian life, a lot of different ideas come into your mind. You don't need to say any of them out loud. But when we talk about the priority, the thing that defines us as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, there is a singular strand that runs through all else that we do. and something that stands above everything else in our lives. It's best described by Jesus himself in Matthew 22. So open your Bibles there. I'm going to take you to a couple passages before we settle in our main passage for the night. But open to Matthew 22, and let's just look at how Jesus defines the high point of the Christian life, the most important thing, the central tenet, as it were, of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Matthew 22, verse 37. He says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Said a different way, the high point of the Christian life, the definition of what it means to be a Christian, is whether or not you love Jesus Christ. It is the highest aim. It is the greatest purpose. It is not about what you do. It is not about the religious aspect. It is not about the external side of things. It is about whether or not you love Christ. Flip back a few chapters to chapter 10, Matthew 10, verse 37. Said a different way, Jesus still speaking. On the same topic, he says this, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Let me say it again. Being a Christian uh, involves loving Jesus Christ. Isn't that why Jesus in John 21 came to Peter on the beach after Peter had denied Christ? And three times he asked him a very simple question. Do you remember what it is? Do you, do you love me? He didn't ask him, what have you done for me? Where are you serving me? Um, are you willing to fight? He said, do you love me? In 1 Peter 1, 7, it says that even though we haven't seen him physically with our eyes, we love him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says that it is the love of Christ that controls us. 
1 John 4.19 says that we love him because he first loved us. And 1 Corinthians 16.22 says that if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. But, but as everyone in this room that is a follower of Jesus Christ has experienced, the love that we have for him is not constant. It ebbs and it flows based on many different things in our life. Our circumstances, finals are coming, there's a term paper due, there's, there's stuff happening at work, there's relational turmoil, our health, uh, our jobs, family drama, we've been busy, it's been a stressful time, there's trials in my life, and the ever-present war against sin, and so many other things challenge us and tempt us to abandon that love for Christ. We watch it ebb and flow. We could say that all Christians love the Lord Jesus Christ, by definition, but all Christians do not love the Lord Jesus Christ fully and at all times, right? We don't. We struggle here. We're up and we're down on this. And so tonight, we're going to spend time looking in the mirror and evaluating our own relationships with God. This is a checkpoint for you. I I titled the message, Hitting the Reset Button. And sometimes at this point in the semester and this point in the year, it's good to just take a, a moment back and look into our own hearts pull back the curtains, and actually see how we're doing with the Lord. Uh, We could look at a bunch of different topics, right? How's your time in the Word, your prayer life, your commitment to church? Are you evangelizing? But it's easier and more direct and quicker, and it cuts straight to the point when we ask the question, do you love Christ? Right? That's the heart of the issue. Now, you and I are not the first Christians to struggle with our love for the Lord. And if you're feeling tonight that ebb and flow in your life, maybe you're up, maybe you're down, um, we're not the first ones to deal with this. There was a church in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus, that had a hard time with this too. They had drifted, they had grown cold a little bit, and the instruction given to them is direct, and it's helpful, and it actually applies directly to us tonight. So with that, flip over your Bibles to the last book, Revelation chapter 2, and that's what we're going to... Um, set up shop tonight. Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Now, as you're going there, understand that Revelation is a book written by the Apostle John. It is not Revelations plural, okay? It is Revelation singular, okay? You have the book of Psalms plural. If you look at an individual psalm, it is Psalm 34, singular, It is never revelations. It is always singular revelation because chapter one, verse one says that this is the the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, okay? So that's where we're going. Uh, Chapters three through 22 are about the end times. We call that eschatology. But chapters one through three are a look back in time to the time of the apostles um, as John, the apostle John, wrote from exile on the island of Patmos. And he writes here to a real church in chapter two in this little town called Ephesus, okay? Uh, And so, in fact, if you look at chapters two and three, there's seven different letters written to seven different actual real churches in those days. And we're only gonna look at the first one, okay? So let's read verses one through seven together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. 
and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. And here comes the central issue in verse four. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And there it is, right there. You have left your first love. That word left there in the original means you have abandoned or forsaken or let go of the primacy and intimacy of. Of what? Of your relationship with Christ. The passion, the intensity, the excitement that was openly displayed at one point in your life that marked your Christian life, it has waned, it has tapered off. It's just a shadow of what it once was. Let me ask you personally, does this define or describe your walk with Christ right now, your love for Christ today, in your own heart, in your own mind? Let me give you some adjectives. Dull, maybe even lazy, apathetic, calloused, uninspired, trumped up. You came in singing, but it was difficult to sing. They were just words. There's no emotions. The desire's missing. Christianity is a chore. It's boring. You're going through the motions. Maybe the outside is the same. You still show up on time on Friday nights, on Sunday mornings, to radics. You still have your notebook out taking notes. You smile. You talk the talk. But there's no fire on the inside. Anybody? Jesus has a word for you and a word for me tonight. Look what he says in verse 5. This I have against you, verse 4, you've left your first love, 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, these are the instructions for the church at Ephesus to stoke the fire and regain their first love. And these same instructions come to you and they come to me tonight. It's 2,000 years later. We're halfway around the world, but the heart of the Christian is the same. And the struggles are very similar. You might have a cell phone. They didn't. You might be able to drive in a car. They didn't. But they were, they were people like us that struggled with the flesh, battled with their sin, and had a very similar issues. And they lost their first love like many in this room have lost our first love. And I'd like to challenge you and, and encourage you to allow the Spirit of God to cut into your soul tonight and remove those calluses and help to restore a passionate love for Christ in your heart. Like I said, I titled the message, Hitting the Reset Button. And it's time. It's time. We, we need to rekindle that love for Christ. We need to hit that button, and we're going to get instruction on that tonight. Uh, and in order to, to uh, give you structure to this message, I divide the text into four parts, really just four words. They'll help keep us organized and keep us moving through it pretty simple. The four words are this, priority, motivation, remedy, and reward. Okay, that's where we're going to go. We're going to look at these in order. I know they don't mean much to you, but the, the goal tonight is that we would reestablish our first love for Christ. Okay, so first, let's look at the word priority. Priority. Look again at verse one. He says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Now, I, what color are the, uh, you, anybody have a colored Bible? Like, uh, you do. What color are, the, are the, um, the words there in verse one, verse two? Red. They're red. <coughs> you know what that means? 
They were spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the author of this. And in verse 1, it says, he introduces himself, saying this, uh, I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now you might be thinking, what the heck is going on? I don't want to spend too much time on this, but if I could explain it to you, if you go back into chapter 1 and verse 12, you can look there. John actually sees a vision of the resurrected Christ. His hair is like wool, white wool, feet like bronze, eyes like a flame of fire. John is seeing this vision. And in chapter 1, verse 17, it says he's Jesus' best friend, right? But he sees the resurrected Christ. He falls on his face like a dead man, the text says. Because as a sinful man, he's come face to face with God himself. Verse 13, look there in verse 13, chapter 1. It says that, that here Jesus is standing in the middle of seven lampstands. In verse 17, or is that verse 16? I, I wrote in my notes verse 176, so I'm not sure which one it is. But it says that he holds the seven stars in his hand. Verse 20, look down there, explains this part of the vision, saying, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let me pull all this together for you. The seven angels most likely represent the seven pastors of those churches or the, the, the framework of leadership in those churches. Um, and, and what we're seeing here is that Jesus is standing amidst the seven lampstands. Those are his churches. Take a picture. These are little lamps, terracotta lamps, and they're sitting, seven of them around a room. Jesus is amidst the seven of these lampstands. He is inside of his church. He's involved with his church, concerned with it, caring for it. Notice this. The picture of Christ is not inside a massive stadium with 50,000 people, with him standing on the 50-yard line with football helmets all around. Okay, Or in the middle of the NBA playoffs, he comes into center court and there's basketballs laying around there. He is not seen in the middle of a bank with piles of money stacked up at the stock market. He's not even seen in a home with pictures of family and everything else happening in the family room. The picture of the risen son of God is in the midst of his church. And he's standing there tending to the lamps, trimming their whips, wicks, taking care of them. You know why? Because the church is his body. It is his bride. In Ephesians 5.25, don't turn there, it says this, he loves the church and gave himself up for her. In Matthew 16.18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. The church, listen carefully, matters to Jesus Christ. It is his special possession. It's what he died for. It is what he lives for. And so here he stands, chapter 2, verse 1, he's standing amongst the seven golden lampstands. He's standing amongst his church, preparing to give instruction, direction, and help to his churches. And there's much that needs to be communicated, isn't there? If you look at these seven letters, he has a lot to say to these different churches um, to get them back on the right track. With so much going on, there's churches that are suffering, persecuted, people dying, issues of worldliness, immorality, other sins that have infiltrated the church. And Jesus wants to get the message out. He's going to help solve the problems in the church. Here's the Lord of the church coming to his churches. And where does he begin? Where does he begin? He doesn't begin, let me give you a lesson on doctrine. Okay? He doesn't begin, let me clear up some theological issues that you've been having. No, no, no. Listen, he goes right to the main thing to the central tenet, to the core of the faith, he begins with the priority, love for God, nearness of the heart to Christ. He goes right after the first love. He could have gone to any one of these seven churches to lay out, this is a problem here, that's a problem there. He purposely puts Ephesus at the top of the list as if to say, this is the most important thing. 
The priority is that you understand that love for Christ is the most important. It's what matters more than anything else. He puts the scalpel straight into the heart like a master surgeon, and he goes right after it because he knows if this is not in place, everything else fails. If love for Christ isn't primary in your life, everything else is worthless. You could do all sorts of amazing things, 1 Corinthians 13 says. You can give your body to be burned. You could give your money away. You can sound forth with the tongues of an angel. But if you don't have love, there's nothing there. This week, flight 1492 out of Moscow, little tiny um, jet with like 100-something people on board, crashed shortly after takeoff, killing 41 people. You guys see this in the news? Okay, check the news every now and then, it's helpful. Um, But it took off in a hailstorm, it was struck by lightning and it quickly came back to the ground and when it hit the runway, uh, the back, the tail end of the plane just erupted into flames. So the plane stops and the rear doors engulfed in flames were such that they could not get those open and get people out there so everybody had to go out through the front. And so they open the doors, kick them out, the little sleds go down and, uh, and people start getting out of there. Well. Uh, reports started surfacing, and there's pictures of this, that people in the front of the plane were grabbing their carry-on bags and and then getting out, all right? 41 people burned to death in the back of this plane or or, um, couldn't breathe or whatever happened and died. And there's pictures of a guy wheeling his bag out and right after the thing went down, asking for a full refund for the flight. And you sit there and think about what is really going on. Is your laptop that important, right? Is like my clothing, like let it burn, okay? Because uh, I don't really have, so half my stuff is too small and the other half of it is too big. And so I just, I, I just need to get in the middle of that somehow. That's for another message. <clears throat> but people are, people are dying, literally, physically burning to death and you're grabbing your bag and making sure you're getting a refund. You put it in that perspective, it it is taking the main thing, the priority of life, and substituting it with something that is so much the lesser. It's a sad story and a sad critique on our world today. I, I think that too often, too often, we take the most important thing and we push it to the side in our Christian life, or we forget about it, and we focus on lesser things. But Jesus comes and he says, let me take all the other things going on and push them to the side and remind you of what is the most important thing. And it's not like number two is close. One is at the top of the mountain and two, three, and beyond are all side issues. So let me ask again, how is your love? Is loving Christ the first priority in your life right now? Is your heart inflamed for Jesus Christ? What has taken pole position in your life? Or let me say it differently. What is in the way that is distracting you and holding you back from nearness to Christ? Is it relationship? Is it busyness? Is it just basic apathy that you've drifted, wandered, etc.? I don't know what it is. But it's time to hit the reset button and recognize the priority of life is loving Christ. That takes us to our second word, which is the word motive. The word motive. First word was priority. Second word is the word motive. When we think about our relationship with Christ, we, we, and if I ask you, how's your relationship with God doing? How's your Christian walk going? We tend to put it into what we are doing for him right now. 
That's kind of where we go in our minds. How much we're serving, how often we go to church, how much we read our Bibles, whether or not we listen to secular music or where that person's singing in the car driving down and people are looking at you like and you're just going crazy in your car. That's pretty much me. But uh, um, anyway, whether or not you're sharing your faith or you have the Christian bumper sticker. Thanks, Nicole, for putting that on your car. You know, all those things that are there, you're, that's how we define our Christian life. But let's get down to the nitty gritty. If you're on junior high staff and you're serving, awesome. High school staff and you're serving. You're part of our senior staff. You're part of our um, serving staff. You're leading worship. You're someone that teaches or preaches. You set things up. You tear things down. You do administrative work. You're a hospitality person. You go on a missions trip. You serve in the children's ministry. It is so easy for us to get wrapped up in the external expression of our religion. What we do. How hard we work. How much we serve. Doing the right things. Doing the right things the right way. This was the church at Ephesus. This is a good church, okay? Paul, the Apostle Paul, planted the church. Their second pastor's, and he spent three years there. Their second pastor's name was Timothy, okay? Um, Tychicus was there. Then after a long break, just in case you thought, you know, well, they're gonna drift off, the Apostle John had a stint there as the pastor, okay? All before this letter is written. This church was deep and steep in theology, Doctrine and apostolic wisdom. Unbelievable. And so Jesus encourages them. Look down there in verse three. He comes to them and he says, check out what you guys are doing. Like you've been around for about 40 years as a church and you're doing some amazing things. I want to break this into four sections, his encouragement really quickly. And I want to preface it by saying, this is FBC. Ephesus and FBC are very similar. Now check this. The first is this. Jesus' encouragement first. They are faithful. We can say, you are faithful. Okay, look at verse two. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. That word for know, he has an, an infinite, almighty, that's the wrong word. He can see everything and he knows everything. I know your deeds. I know everything you're doing. I know all that's happening in your heart and what's coming out. I have full expression. I see fully what you're doing. What does he know? Deeds, toil, perseverance. The Lord knows the ups and downs. His eyes are like a flame of fire that sees all. He knows their deeds. That, that is their works, what they are doing, what they have done. He sees all that they've accomplished. FBC, we're 15 years in, and guess what? We can't wait to build a building. We've got people going overseas. We've got ministry going out to Wazoo. We've got all sorts of great things happen. Jesus Christ knows those efforts. Pretty cool. He knows. He knows the toil, right? I know how hard you've worked. That word for toil means to labor to the point of exhaustion, to the point of weariness. It means to put everything in until there's nothing left in the tank, either emotional or physical. It was used of a soldier in battle. It was used of the strenuous wrestling of an athlete. I think today we would talk about a person who's got bloody fingers from learning their instrument or the person who stays up all night to get that paper done or the person who puts in the extra hours at work or puts in the extra set at the gym. We understand what it means to go all in and have that kind of toil and that kind of exhaustion in different aspects of life. Some of you understand that toil in the church. I've watched you. 
I've seen you. You have served to the point of exhaustion. Beyond what is normal and expected, you continue to give. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, this is Paul, and he said this, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. To give yourself, to open your home, to just extend well beyond what is necessary. Some of you serve that way. You give everything. Go to camp, you don't sleep. You pay to be there. You're around these little people that smell bad and do all sorts of crazy things, and you do it because you love Christ and want to be there with them. You go on a short-term missions trip halfway across the world, pay thousands of dollars to go to give the gospel to other people. Some of you stay up all night preparing to preach and teach. You go to children's ministry, and you're there with these little, these little robots and these little animatronic um, you know, people that are wandering around, and, and you serve in there to the point of exhaustion, working until you have nothing left, giving until you have, are even affected physically. Right? And, and these people, these Ephesians people were like this. They understood. They had spent themselves. They had given it all. Right? They, they were there physically, emotionally spent. And then Jesus uses a third word, the word perseverance. That is, in the Greek, to remain under a heavy load. It is to just, and to just hold it right there. To courageous acceptance of hardship, suffering, and loss, and to bear under that burden. It's to hold on and to endure. I think of the way that a diamond is formed, right? Take a piece of coal, you heat it up and put it under a tremendous amount of pressure for a long period of time, and the chemical composition of the coal changes it into a diamond. High pressure and heat in the life of a believer over time produces endurance, which brings you closer to Christ and gives you maturity, James chapter 1 says. Show me a mature believer, and I will show you someone who has been put through the test of trials and through the fire of difficulty. And so if I was categorizing these three things, I would tell you this. These people are faithful. They're faithful. They know what it means to get their hands dirty and to stay in the task. Okay? And so are many of you. Praise God. And Jesus encourages them with that. Secondly, he says, I would say they're holy. Verse 2. It says there, look down. It says, and you cannot tolerate evil men. All right, they had a high and holy standard. They were sensitive to sin. They kept all forms of wickedness and impurity out of the church. These evil men came in. We don't exactly know what they were doing, how they were doing it, but they would not have anything to do with it. All right, they remembered Paul's words, Paul's words to them in the epistle to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter six, excuse me, chapter five, verse two, don't turn there. He said this, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. They remembered that. And so they did not allow people to infiltrate the church. They kept themselves pure. Look down at verse six. It says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Keep them out. These people are mixing immorality with Christianity. And Jesus says, and you block them. Awesome. You're holy. Many here in this room are in the war against sin. You are daily going to task with your flesh and working as hard as you can to choose Christ over your sin, fighting for holiness. Praise God. There's encouragement in that fight. And Jesus says thoroughly to them, I would, say, I would say this in encouragement, they know their Bible. Look at verse two. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. How do you recognize a false teacher? Well, one, you need to know what? You need to know the truth. And secondly, you need to be willing to stand up and say that's wrong and to do what with that person? Get out to keep the church pure. But that happens first if you know the word of God. 
These people knew the apostles' teaching. They had solid doctrine and they put to the test these false teachers and they found they're not right. You put them to the test when you take what they are saying versus what the, the word of God says and you say these don't match, you're out of here. They knew their Bibles, okay? That's the point. They had been well-trained and they had strict, um, thick biblical lines. And I, again, this is a lot like FBC. FBC is a solid, deep, biblical, doctrinal, theological church. There are high walls with many guards. There is very little chance that a false teacher is going to get in. Okay? Not under our watch. We've been too well trained. We know our Bible too deeply to let somebody come in and bring a false doctrine into our church. Now, it could happen, but that's our fight. Like these people, we want to keep that out, right? Many of you in here, not many, but some of you have done the training center, our church-based seminary program. Many of you in here have studied the word of God. You're well-versed in the scriptures. You're able to give an account for the hope that's in you, 1 Peter 3.15, with gentleness and reverence. You can defend the faith. You are deep in God's word, having memorized scripture, meditated on it for years. You understand and know the Bible. And I would say, praise God. And Jesus encourages them because they knew their Bible. And he moves on finally to this, I will just use the word perseverance. The final encouragement, and this kind of goes with the first one, but I'll use it again because verse three, he, he summarizes it and says, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. These were spiritual marathoners, okay? Like I said, 40 years at least they had been in the fight, staying true, and they did it According to this verse, look at, look at what, why. They've endured for what purpose? For my name's sake. They went to the line for the name of Jesus Christ and to hold that. And I love the end of verse three. And you have not grown weary. They have been fighting. They have toiled to the point of exhaustion. They have upheld the word of God. They have been faithful and they're not weary. They're still pursuing doing good. There's still so much work to be done. Right? They've worked hard for the gospel. They were a light to the community around them. They shared their faith. They held to good teaching. They were intolerant of sin and any deviation from the clear teaching of scripture. There was no weary, weariness, but they kept on doing and doing and doing all the best things. And the text says they did it for the name of Christ. And Jesus here commends them and encourages them and builds them up for their faithful years of service. And again, I would say this is FBC. Don't you see it? That's, that's what our church is. I love our church. It's so good. But then Jesus says this, there's one central thing missing and he levels the charge against them in verse four. Look down. He says, but I have this against you. And it's as if the air goes out of the room. The sovereign Lord of the church, the one who stands amongst the lampstands, the one who sees all and knows all has a charge to bring against his people. He has something to tell you and he has something to tell me. And there it is. It is that you have left your first love. Having done everything right on the outside, you've done it with wrong motives. In the groove of faithfulness and perseverance, but listen, their love had grown cold. They had drifted, they had wandered, they had allowed indifference and maybe even a coldness of heart to creep in. You know what's interesting is you'll never see this in the externals. You'll never see it in the externals. And think about your own life. 
Same service, same efforts, same production. Just a heart that's not connected. A heart that's serving for the wrong reasons. A service that's become mechanical. It becomes duty and not delight. Uh, There's obligation and tasks and to-dos that fill the equation and the calendar. Joy is gone. Love is gone. Serving, reading the Bible, praying, fellowship become a chore and a responsibility and a duty and no longer a response to what Christ has done. Does this describe your walk with the Lord? Have you let your first love go? What was once so important to you is just now another part of your calendar. It's just a checkbox on the to-do list. Has your Christian walk become automated? Church on Sundays, grafted Friday nights, radix, hanging out with people here, and you become like a robot doing the deeds but forgetting the heart. Where is your love tonight? And what has your heart right now? Is it Christ? Is he more precious to you than anything else? Can you say with the hymn writer, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than the chorus. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. There are Christians, good, solid Christians, sitting in this room right now who have left their first love. There's something else at the center of your life. There is a new love, a different love, something else that has replaced Jesus. You're consumed by something or someone else. And Exodus 34 says that, he says, my name is jealous. He will not tolerate sharing your heart with another. That is idolatry. But if you're about some other goal or some other aim and the love is gone, then tonight, tonight, you need to hit the reset button. By the way, the reason I gave you a rundown of my life earlier was not to brag about how much I'm doing and all the busyness in my life. It was because the reason I came to this text and looking at my life that is filled with ministry and filled with good things. I recognize I so quickly drift from doing this out of responsive love, motivated by a love for my Savior because of what he's done for me, and instead just churning through the steps, like walking through like deep snow, just heavy steps, trying to get it done because this is what good Christians do. So I'm here, I'm preaching to myself. And sometimes we trade the fire of love for the coldness of religion and obligation the passion of relationship with the Savior for the burden of obedience to some religious form. And Jesus calls out tonight. He knows your heart like he knows their heart. He knows what they were doing. He knows what you have done. And like a surgeon, he cuts all the way to the depths of your soul to reveal what's truly there. And he's revealing whether or not he is your first love. This week, this day, in this moment, is he the greatest treasure? the pearl of great price that you'd be willing to sell everything for. Listen, this doesn't define super Christians. Well, that guy's a pastor. This is normal Christianity. Loving Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the definition of a Christian. So where does it find you? Have you lost your first love? Is Christianity a chore and a bore? 
Does it seem that his commandments are burdensome to you? If so, then let's move on to uh, number three. Our third word is the word remedy. We've got priority. We've got motive. Now let's look at the remedy. In verse five, Jesus gives us the solution to the wayward soul. Three simple steps. Look at five. He says, therefore, if this is you and describes you, Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Three things. Simple. The first thing he says is remember from where you have fallen. You want to come back, Christian? You want to feel that freshness and that nearness to God again? Then you need to remember from where you've fallen. These are three commands, by the way, in the Greek. Because we have forgotten. When he says remember something, it is implied in there that we have forgotten drifted and are comfortable, no longer remembering the chains that bind us to sin that are dragging us and we're dragging us to hell. We do not remember the prison that Christ rescued us from, setting us free from the slavery and domination of sin and giving us freedom and hope. The Ephesians had forgotten. Now, did you know that they were saved? This was a pretty big city. I don't want to go into any detail on this, but it was a big city at the center point of four major roads in the, in the Roman Empire, and they had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple to Artemis, Diana. It was a, a cult, a prostitution-based worship cult, but this thing was 450 feet long and like, uh, what was it? It's like 240 feet wide, 60 feet tall with 120-something pillars, and it was unbelievable. And basically, you would go into this temple, and your worship was a sexual experience that was designed to bring you into the presence of the gods. So half of the city is, you know, most of the city is worshiping that way. Um, They are filled with lust, worldliness. Um, They're headed to destruction. They don't know Christ. And the second group of people are magicians, all right? Because Acts 19 tells us they're practicing magic arts. Paul comes, preaches the gospel, they get saved. And it says they throw their books in the fire in the sight of all, 50,000 pieces of silver worth. Okay, so that's like Judas traded Jesus' life for 30 pieces of silver. Just to give you an idea, that was like a month's salary. 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of books, Okay, that's a lot of people that were into magic arts that said that my religion serving basically Satan, I'm throwing that away to follow Christ. So you've got the immoral and you've got the Satan worshipers and Paul comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ and he gives them the the saving message of what it means to have faith in Christ. And guess what happens? Many of them get saved. Okay, snatches brands out of the fire. Um, They have been saved and now here they are and they've forgotten what God has saved them from. They've forgotten where they were. And Jesus is saying, remember from where you have fallen, you have to go back to the central truth. And that same thing happens with us. This slow process of drift that brings us away, we forget. We forget that we are sinners who are worthy of an eternal hell because we've sinned against the holy God. We forget that we were once disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, Titus 3 says. We forget that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says, that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards says. Not at the same level, but still. Somehow we've forgotten that even in our sin, Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died in our place. He had nails driven through his hands and feet, beaten, spit on, mocked, murdered for our sin, hanging between earth and heaven from a cross of wood, naked, shamed, dying for us. We forget that he bore our sins in his body on the cross, 1 Peter 2. We forget that on the cross he yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God poured out his wrath on his son and intimacy was severed for the first time in eternal history. R.C. Sproul says it this way, it is the scream of the damned for us. 
is what Christ did on the cross. We forget that he endured an eternity of wrath that God Almighty um, had built up, we had built up, and was intended for us. We forget his final words, it is finished. The declaration that sin has been paid for, that death has been conquered, that he was the victor. He settled our debt, he paid the price we couldn't pay. And in Revelation 2, he asks us to remember. He commands us to remember. Remember how great a salvation you have. Remember that you are no longer a prisoner of sin, but an adopted son or daughter of the Most High God. Remember from where you have fallen and come back. Why do you think Jesus gave us communion? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in what? Remember me. Be reminded, come back often and be in that vein where you see and you're in the, in the traffic of what he has done for us, always there, always fresh on the mind. Let me ask you, Christian, what did God pull you out of? What pit did he find you in when he rescued you with his grace? Some of you had some pretty gnarly stuff. Some of you, he rescued you out of the pit of religious externalism as a Pharisee living in a good Christian home. Pulled you out as some self-righteous snob and showed you that you needed the grace of God to overcome your sinful life. Remember from where he brought you that he changed you, that he made you his son, his daughter. Have you forgotten? He says remember. Secondly, he says repent. Repent. You know what repentance is, right? Repentance means I was going this way and I turned and I walked that way. It means I turn from this way of life, I leave it there, and I follow a new pathway. Repent. Uh, To lose your first love is sin. Recognize it as sin. The decreasing intensity of your love for Christ is sin. Get on your knees before God tonight, Christian, and ask him to forgive you for that weakening love. (laughs) Some of you need to go to him And get right with him tonight. Admit that you have drifted, that your heart is hard, that you're just callous, and even this message is barely cracking through that wall that you've built up. And you need to say to the Spirit of God, please, like the penitent, um, the, the, the penitent, the publican, Luke 18, who's beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Pray until God cracks your heart. God, break me of this sin and show me again. You haven't had a quiet time in a month. You're here, sitting here tonight. The word of God is just hitting you and bouncing off. You came to hang out with your friends. You sang, but it was just words, no heart connected. You need to go and repent. You need to remember that God took you from being this miserable sinner, destined for hell. He put you on a course to be in heaven, forgiving you of sin, and now you've drifted. He's saying, come back, repent, and come back to me. And he says, thirdly, and return. Look there at verse five, and do the deeds you did at first. Do the deeds you did at first. What are those deeds? It's not super complicated. It's different for every single one of us. When you were most excited about Jesus Christ, probably shortly after you were saved, and you were on fire, and every thought, and every word, and you were captivated by what he had done for you, and you couldn't help but share your faith, and read your Bible, and commune with God in prayer, and love him, and love others, whatever that looks like for you, it might have been at a camp. It might have been, for me, I think of sitting at my, in my bedroom in high school, and I had this big board that my mom had made for me so I could do puzzles on it when I was a kid. <laughs> it's retarded, right? It was sealed. It was really nice. 
And I remember putting my Bible out and putting my commentaries out and putting the, the commentary I was writing out, First Peter. I'll let you guys read it sometime. And, uh, and I would sit there and I would be in God's word for hours sometimes. And I remember jumping up and down sometimes in my room by myself with the door closed because I was so in love with Christ and what he'd done for me. And all he's saying is go back. I'm not going to jump up and down for you right now, but go back and do the things that you did at first. What are those things? Think about that. Think about that. Maybe it was singing in the shower. Maybe it was having a quiet time every day. Maybe it was uh, going on prayer walks. Whatever that thing was that you were doing, go back to it. That's not like, well, that was when I first got saved. I don't do those things anymore. No, that is what the Christian life is. You never move on from the cross, right? That's always where we are. And he says, look back at verse five. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Go straight back to the heart of the issue and fall in love with Jesus Christ once again. Some of you are so far, you've drifted into sin, you've traded Christ for a relationship or a job or some passing pleasure this world has to offer and I want you to hear these words as coming from the lips of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first. It's pretty simple, but it's not easy. If you don't, verse six says, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, this is a challenge to that church in general. Uh, The lampstand, again, represents the church at Ephesus. I'm going to come and put the light out. I'm gonna remove the lampstand. Your opportunity to influence and impact this world I will come and I will remove it. That's pretty sad. Did that happen? Yes, it did. That church is no longer there. It lasted a long time, but it's not there today. Ephesus is a a bleak reminder of a church that didn't heed the letter and the light went somewhere else. So we have priority, we have motive, we have, what was number three? Good, making sure you're paying attention. And number four, we have reward. We have reward. Look at verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know what he's saying? You better listen. You have an ear? Your heart's been awakened spiritually. You have spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear. Christian, listen. The Spirit of God is moving. He is coming and he's saying, don't stand Um, resolute in your sin, but allow uh, these words to break down those barriers. barriers. Don't ignore this. This is serious. If you have spiritual ears, you better listen. The Spirit is speaking. And then he says in verse seven, to him who overcomes, here's the reward, to the overcomer, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The first thing I want you to notice there is that who has the power of eternal life? Who can say, I will grant this? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I will give this to you. The almighty, the all-powerful, the one who has all power, the one that has powerful more than any... Okay, I'm just kidding. But this one, Jesus Christ, comes and says, I will give this to you. Who's the overcomer? It's the Christian. It's the believer. 1 John 5, 4, whatever's born of God overcomes the world. If you have true saving faith, you will remain faithful. Um, and the reward is to eat from the tree of life. Do you remember Eden? You guys remember the story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 about the Garden of Eden and how there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and there was also a second tree called the tree of life. Okay, And they chose to eat from the 
knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And in that moment, they, they sinned. They recognized their nakedness. They threw the entire human race into sin. But there was a second tree called the tree of life. And it says that God blocked the garden from them. He put the cherubim there, right, with the flaming sword that turned every direction. And what he was doing was taking a sinful man and separating that sinful man from a holy God. You are no longer welcome in my presence. And he blocked the way to his presence, which was represented by the garden, and the cherub that are the ones that protect the holiness of God, they're closest to him. If you look in the scriptures, they're there guarding God's presence. Holiness and sinfulness don't come together. And on top of that, this tree that God blocked them from was important because if they were to reach out and eat that tree, what would happen? They would be living forever in a state of being damned. And therefore, redemption wouldn't be possible. And so God blocked them from that. But there's a day coming when we will be, look down at the text, in the paradise of God, not in the Garden of Eden, but in the very presence of God in heaven, <clears throat> and Jesus will grant to us to eat of that tree, to then take that fruit and eat that and have eternal life in his presence in heaven forever. Now watch this. The reward comes to those who love Jesus Christ. It is not those who do a lot of good deeds. It is not know, those who know their Bibles the best. It comes to those who overcome. And if you trace this back up in the text, it is those who have a first love and it's Christ. Okay? Jesus grants life to those who love him. So, these four words have taken us through. And my challenge to you tonight is to hit the reset button in your life. I don't know where you're at. You might be on a spiritual high. Praise God. Run harder. Love Jesus even more. You might be on a spiritual lull. It's time to come back and to use this text and the Spirit of God prodding you tonight to come and spend time just you and Him getting your heart together. Now, some of you in this room, this doesn't apply because you don't love Christ at all. There is no first love to go back to because there is no love for God whatsoever. You have been living for yourself, loving yourself and doing your own thing. And all these same things apply in terms of the reward or the punishment, the closeness to Christ or the being far away from Christ. But the call to you tonight is to repent and turn for the first time and say, I will let go of my sinful life and I will take hold of your perfect life. And in faith, I want to follow you and I want to love you for what you've done. That's what it means to be a Christian. Most of the people in this room have done that to say, I'm done with my sin. I'm done with pursuing my own thing. I want Jesus. I want the brokenness and the guilt and the pain of my sin to be done away. And I want to hold on to him fully, the treasure, the pearl of great price. He's everything. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to turn from your sin and say, I love you more than anything. And in faith, to reach out and say, forgive me and, and let me have a relationship with you. If you want to know more about what that means, then come and talk to us tonight. We'd like to walk you through what it means to be a follower and listen, a lover of Jesus Christ. Now, for everyone else, the Spirit of God, may he work on your hearts tonight. Let's pray.